and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Ju- Judah and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning. Uh, good morning, church family. Uh, I'm not Daniel. Uh, my name is Russell. I have the privilege and opportunity to serve as the pastoral assistant here at Sanctuary Church. Uh, and first, I just wanted to extend my gratitude to all of you for the way that y'all have accepted Madeline and I into your families and into this congregation over the past eight to nine months, uh, but especially since I came on to staff about two months ago. Uh, and I think uh, after two months of doing Daniel's laundry and getting his coffee in the morning, uh, he finally decided to throw me a bone and let me up here today, so I'm, I'm very appreciative to him for inviting me here as well. Well, I, I think that we all know this feeling in the reading today, that feeling of anticipation, right? That feeling of waiting for something big, something big to come. Maybe for some of us, we're waiting for that latest Taylor Swift album to come out, Uh, and you're waiting for that that first single, you're looking at all the the breakup that Taylor has been through throughout the way, reading interviews and diving deep, and then finally, finally that album comes out and the anticipation is fulfilled. Right. The album is here. Or maybe you're not such a big Taylor Swift fan, but you're waiting for that, that next Marvel movie to come out, right? And you read the comic books to see what the movie should be like, and you're reading these interviews, Uh, with the actors and you're looking for spoilers and then there's that midnight release of the movie and you're there in the front of the line anticipating anticipating to see that movie or maybe maybe the arts aren't quite for you but you and your colleagues sit around and you wait for the most recent supreme court briefs to come out and y'all are talking about you know what has the constitution speak into this issue how might these justices, you know, how are they going to decide on this case? And then finally, finally, the briefs come out. Glorious day, and you get to sit around and talk about them with your friends. 
And admittedly, I'm not quite sure if that last one is even a real thing, but I figured, given the demographic this morning, uh, that I would, I would throw it in there. And today, as we set out to, to see anticipation building in Mark, Mark 1, 2 through 11, the crowds are filing in to hear John the Baptist preach, and they're waiting for this big arrival, and that big arrival is imminent. And we're going to take up the goal that Daniel laid out for us last week, if you'll remember, which was to see Jesus as he is. And we took that from 1 John 3, 2, which said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning as your humble servants, and we ask that we might see your character more clearly today, and that because of who you are, we would be stirred to action. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Well, today, at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, it's the Messiah who appears. And we're going to start to get an idea of who Jesus really is. And we're going to divide this reading of Mark this morning into three parts. First, we're going to see a prophecy. Next, we'll see a herald or a messenger. And finally, this beginning of Mark will culminate with a baptism, the baptism of Jesus. So a prophecy and a herald that points the climax of our story this morning, the baptism of Jesus. And Mark's very first word as he embarks to tell us about who Jesus is actually seem a bit odd, right? They come from the Old Testament. He doesn't give us a birth narrative like Matthew and Luke do, and he doesn't give us a theological poetic prologue like the Gospel of John. No, how can the story of Jesus even begin without Christmas? Is Mark some sort of ancient Scrooge? And no, I don't think he is. I think what he intends to show us is that the beginning of the story of Jesus isn't actually the beginning of the story of God's redemptive tale that he's been telling all throughout time. Mark is going to show us that all the way back in the time of Isaiah and even before that, God has had a plan to make a way to send Jesus. The prophecy here is actually a chain of three separate texts. They originate in Exodus, Isaiah, and Malachi. And see, as I read through these prophecies, if you can pick up on the common word that's flowing throughout each one. In Exodus 23, as the nation of Israel wanders in the desert, God makes this promise to them. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you the place that I have prepared. Later, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, Isaiah says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. And finally, in the book of Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament the prophet quotes God saying this, Malachi 3, 1. 
Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you delight will seek whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I wonder if you caught that subtle shared word in each of those three prophecies, the way. Right, Even though God has been making ways for his people all throughout time, and he has been a way-making God, ultimately, he has been preparing and making a way for Jesus to come into the world. Mark is showing us, using the Old Testament, using these prophets, that God had this distinct plan throughout his time, and it isn't just this plan B to send Jesus. And I think that begs the question then, well, you know, what, what, are, what are we being prepared for? What is this messenger? What is this way? What is it pointing towards? And if you read those prophecies again, you read Isaiah, he says, prepare the way of the Lord and make a highway for God. Malachi tells us that it's the Lord of hosts who's coming. This isn't just an ordinary man This isn't even just the Messiah that maybe the Israelites thought they were going to get. John the Baptist has come to prepare the people for God. God in the flesh. And I think maybe now, after this prophecies, we can feel the anticipation building, right? Just like for other things in our life, we feel anticipation building. Now, we've seen the prophet and we move to the messenger and we feel that anticipation building yet again. And we find in verse 4, John the Baptist, right? He's out there. He's earning his name. He's baptizing people in the wilderness. He's proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And crowds and crowds of people are going out to see John. And they're experiencing God. They're preparing to meet God out in the wilderness. And the wilderness, as you'll recall, is a traditional place of meeting between God and man all throughout the Old Testament. Moses in the burning bush in the wilderness meets God. The Israelites, as they're wandering through the wilderness, meet God at Mount Sinai. And the prophet Elijah stays out in the wilderness working miracles. And people go to him to meet God. And once again, here we find the people of God in the wilderness preparing to come face to face with him. Now, I think this, once again, will trigger a few questions. How, how are the people being prepared? What are they preparing for? And I think, we, you know, Daniel talked a lot last week about the, the people had all these expectations for the Messiah. Is, he, is John telling them, hey, go run, grab all the weapons you can find, get your swords, get your shields, because there's about to be a big holy war. That's not quite what he is telling them to prepare for now. Does he tell them to retreat into the desert and go study the scriptures and meditate? No, that's not how they're preparing. And just like if you saw somebody putting on their running shoes and their, their shorts and their shirt, putting in their headphones, you would know they're preparing to go on a run the way that John the Baptist tells the people to prepare will tell us a lot about what Jesus has come to do. What does he tell them? He says... Repent and be baptized. Turn away from your sin 
and be cleansed. This isn't a physical kingdom that is coming. This isn't something that will be taken with swords and shields. No. The Messiah is coming to institute the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that will reign in all of our hearts. I think as we move along through the text, you've probably taken notes at some point of the way John the Baptist dresses. It it seems a bit odd. He's wearing animal clothes. But for the people of Israel, this would have been an obvious indication, an obvious throwback to the prophet Isaiah, or to the prophet, excuse me, Elijah, who, as I said, was out in the wilderness. He wore animal skins and he worked wonders. And Jesus actually tells us in the Gospel of Matthew that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And then, after we get the explanation of John the Baptist's dress, he begins to speak and he starts to tell us what this Messiah is going to be like. He starts to build that anticipation once again. And John, who actually had a rather large following himself, he doesn't magnify himself. No, what does he do? He magnifies the coming Messiah while minimizing himself. As the crowds gather near, they would have heard about this strong and this mighty Messiah whose sandal straps, John said he isn't even worthy to untie. And of course, you'll note that at that time, the sandal straps, the sandals would have been a very disgusting and filthy job. The master would come home after a long day of walking around and it would be beneath him to untie his own sandal straps so he would have his servant do it for him. Jesus, you remember at the Last Supper, he says, he says he's going to wash his disciples' feet and they, they say, no, no, Jesus, you can't do that. Surely... That's too low for you, but here John says, even I am too low to untie his sandal straps. And John notes going on that the Messiah's baptism that will come is going to far exceed his, while his baptism is purely physical and has no power to affect change on a spiritual level. What comes after, the Messiah who comes after, will have power to change our hearts and it will address the core of our spirits. I think it's easy to imagine after hearing this rousing speech, after going out into the wilderness to hear John, who seems to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and hear him say that this mighty Messiah is coming after me, maybe you're starting to feel like the, the author of the Psalms of Solomon felt that Daniel quoted for us last week. The Psalms of Solomon, a piece of intertestamental literature which tell us a lot about what the Jewish people at the time expected out of their Messiah. It says this, they expected the Messiah to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the unlawful nations with the word of his mouth. And we've seen from the prophecies of Exodus, Isaiah, Malachi, from John the Baptist, we can can feel that sense of anticipation that that someone big is coming, this mighty 
Messiah, strong and mighty. John, he's great, and he's not even worthy to untie the sandal straps of the one who comes. And then, in verse 9, something big happens. The Messiah is here. Jesus is right there. He's dropped down into the middle of the story. And when he appears in Mark's Gospel, it isn't as the mighty conqueror that the Psalms of Solomon predicted. It isn't as a mighty warrior. It isn't even as a great orator or a wonder worker, which he will be later in his life. No. The primary move of God in human form is to make himself low. He appears just like a common man in the crowd, waiting in line, like everybody else, to get baptized by John. When I, when I see this and I see how God has come to earth to make himself low, it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a, there's a common experiment, thought experiment that goes something like this, and I'm sure at one point or another you've taken part in this. We say, if I were God, I would do blank, right? And we usually fill it in. Maybe it's something funny. Maybe it's something serious. But we think about this, right? But here, in the Gospel of Mark, we see exactly what God did when he was a human walking around on earth. We'll see later in the Gospel that he heals the sick. He explains and teaches the Scripture. He tells the children to come to him. I mean, God in human form would have been shocking enough to an Israelite of that day that Yahweh, the God of the universe, would condescend to become like one of us. I mean, that idea would have been repulsive to them. But here he is, God in human flesh, and he isn't even a king. He isn't even an amazing, great human. No, he's just like the common man. He's just like you and I. He's identifying with us. He empties himself completely of all godhood and dignity, and that emptying will find its culmination on the cross The Messiah who has come is paradoxically both a master and a servant all at once. In the baptism of Jesus right at the outset of Christ's ministry, I think it teaches us something very important about our faith. Have you ever wondered that? Why why did Jesus even have to be baptized? I mean, baptism is for cleansing, it's, it's for repentance, but... This man who is completely free from the stain of sin, why did he need to submit himself to baptism? And once again, I think the answer is that Christ's baptism was an act of identification with us. Jesus knew that in order to serve as a sacrifice sufficient for all, that he had to become like all. 
He must become like us in every regard. He couldn't hold back even one bit of his godhood. And we see in the scriptures that it was this act of obedience, this act of allowing himself to be baptized by John, that is this, this identification with us that was pleasing to God. Verse 10 tells us that when Jesus came up out of the water, it was then immediately, immediately that the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And immediately here, yes, it denotes quickness, right, in a temporal sense, immediately it happened, but there's also a causal relationship there, right? Jesus was baptized, and he comes up out of the water, and it is then because of that that God says, this is my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. It's that very act that triggers the Father to send his Spirit and to declare his Son, the Beloved. I think those words in verse 11 are so beautiful and something so many of us long to hear from our earthly fathers and long to hear from God the Father. Verse 11, You, Jesus, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. See, God the Father, he makes it very clear who Jesus is. Jesus is the beloved the one who can actually satisfy God on our behalf. And we also see what satisfies God. What is satisfying to God is obedience and a heart that is full of sacrifice. Later, in the Gospel of Mark, as you know, Jesus will go to the cross, the ultimate act of submission, service, and obedience. And we'll see the Son of God, once again, stripped of all dignity, the mighty conqueror, the wonder worker, put to death on a cross. And yet, it isn't until Jesus goes to the cross in the Gospel of Mark that we get another recognition of Jesus as the Son of God, the same recognition that the Father makes here in verse 1. And I'm sure you recall the story. Christ hangs on the cross. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curtain of the temple rips from top to bottom. And it is then, in that very moment, Mark 15, 39, that we get this. And when the centurion, the Roman centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. As the centurion looked upon the humility and sacrifice of Jesus, he couldn't help but see that it was God in the flesh, stripped of everything, stripped of anything that resembled Godhood, who he was as a son of God was actually never more evident. The master become the servant. And friends, today, as believers in Christ, we are called to follow Jesus in his life of service. And this call that Jesus places on our lives 
isn't a 50-50 call and he's not asking us to follow him sometimes but to sometimes do our own thing. No. Paul tells the Romans that they are to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God because that is our true worship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian and minister, said it famously this way. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. As you look at the baptism of Jesus, where he is submitting himself as a sacrifice for us, and once again to the cross, where we see the submissive servant Jesus, we too are called to submit ourselves to serve our neighbor and ultimately to go all the way to death for the sake of his name. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, we love you, and it's only because you first loved us. We thank you so much. We can never thank you enough for the gift of your son, Jesus, on the cross. God, we know that we are called to a life of service and a life of sacrifice, just like Jesus was. And we pray now that you would give us the strength and the courage to live that life for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.